Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matthew Bauman. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Parker. And to get us started, I want to start with a little call and response. So I'm going to start a line, and if you are familiar with it, I want you to speak it back to me. You ready? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That is how Charles Dickens started A Tale of Two Cities. And as I look back on last week, on Easter, and then as we transition to this week in our our passage for today, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times really seems to kind of capture the ethos, the feeling of that transition. Last week was Easter, and so we were celebrating Jesus resurrecting from the grave, him defeating sin and death, and we were just smiling and singing and happy and joyful because of the hope and the security and the confidence that we have in Christ. Last week was the best of times. But as we transition to this week, we see that like last week, people are dying, but unlike last week, they aren't coming back to life. And so last week was joyous, and the people were, were unified, and, and, and there, was, there was no division, and, and, and death couldn't hold anybody, but that's not the case here. Now it is the worst of times. So if you are visiting with us, maybe you decided to check us out for Easter as the first time. A lot of people, you know, will check out a new church for the first time on Easter, and maybe this is uh, your first time coming back just to kind of catch you up on What we do, what we do here at Redemption Parker is we study entire books, and so we'll start at the beginning of a book and work our way through the end, just passage by passage. And as you can tell, this is a a tough passage. It's not very cheery, and Mark and I did not plan it out this way. We didn't think, ah, we're going to get them with Easter and then trap them with Ananias and Sapphira. We we didn't have the the big bait and switch idea in our minds. It just kind of, it kind of worked out like that. So, so we're just going to trust that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for training, for rebuking, rebuking, and for correcting in righteousness, and that God in His providence has something for us here. And so as we read at the end of Acts chapter 4, I think the disciples in the early church were probably feeling a lot like we have felt this past week. You know, they were having a post-Easter high. There, there is a spiritual euphoria going on. You know, so, some of the things that we heard that the early church experienced, they were all of one heart and one soul. They had everything in common. There was great power with the apostles, and, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. You know, th- this sounds a lot like Woodstock. This is like a, a Jesus version of Woodstock. Everybody's happy. There are absolutely no problems. And I think when people think of the early church, they usually stop right here at the end of chapter 4. And their vision of the early church is an idealized and over-romanticized picture. And they think, man, they were just so close to the time of Jesus. They, they had great teaching. They were all together. They never fought. There was never any division you know what? That's what we need to be doing. We need to get rid of all the frills. We just got to focus down and get back to doing what the early church was doing. What we see as we transition out of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is that that over-romanticized, perfect, ideal vision of what the early church is like, it gets blasted out of the water. 
the early church had significant problems. And I hope that as we study this passage, I hope that one of the things that we see is that there are no perfect churches. There has not been a perfect church since day one until now. If you think you found the perfect church, just stick around for a few months and, and wait to be disappointed. Or, or if by some miracle you actually do find a real perfect church, please do not go there. Do not ruin it for everybody who is already there. Don't be that selfish. Let them keep their good thing going. Uh, oddly, I think this passage has been a bit of an encouragement to me. You know, a lot of times I think if I can just be a, a better preacher or a better counselor or a better leader, then, then RP won't have any problems. You know, if, I, if I can just be, you know, like, like some of the big names, like Tim Keller or Matt Chandler or H.B. Charles, if I could just be like them, then, then all of our problems will go away. Well, this church had Peter as its head pastor. I mean, think of Jesus. You could not pick a better church planning candidate than Jesus, and Jesus still went one for 12. Or 11 for 12. Jesus still had Judas. And so one of the things that I hope that we see is that there are no perfect churches, and that as the church is called to be the bride of Christ, what we're going to see is that the honeymoon period ends pretty quick. And then the real marriage starts. And so as we transition from chapter 4 and into chapter 5, what we are meant to do is we are meant to compare Joseph with uh, Joseph and Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. Because Joseph was a stud. He was a five-star disciple. He's going to pop up several times in the book of Acts. In, in chapter 9, after Saul or Paul converts, Joseph is the one who goes around to all the other Christians, the other churches, and says, hey guys, I, I can vouch for Paul. I know he's been going around killing all of our friends, but I can vouch for him. He has met Jesus. He is one of us now. In, in Acts 11 through 13, we're going to see that Barnabas is leading a lot of missionary efforts. And then in Acts chapter 15, you know, there's a, a group of missionaries that are out on the field, and the group is just starting to splinter. Paul is upset at a guy named John Mark because John Mark has proved pretty unreliable, and, and Joseph or Barnabas is the one who steps in and says, no, 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 like, the Lord's not done with him yet. We can still use him. He, he can still be of use to us. So Joseph was, he was a unifier. He, he was, uh, always saw the best in people. You know, the, the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas. Son of encouragement. I've gotten a lot of nicknames in my life, but none of them have ever been near as kind as son of encouragement. If you've ever met Kenton Mattoon, I think that's the closest picture I've ever gotten to a real-life Barnabas. You just look at him and you think, how can you be that nice? The world is a pretty crappy place with a lot of crappy people. How are you always smiling and hugging people? I... You're just an encourager. That's just kind of how you're wired. And the only example of this one heart, one soul, great power, great grace of the early church that we get comes from Barnabas in verse 37. We see that he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. 
And then some people did what all of us do whenever we see somebody being praised publicly, whenever we see somebody being recognized for their you know, good works or their, their good character, their good morality. We, we start conniving in our own minds. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they must have said, ah, that Barnabas, he is so nice. He is so generous. He is so thoughtful, so encouraging. Everybody loves him, and I can't stand it. So they come up with a plan. And they said, we want to be like Barnabas, or we want to just be perceived as being like Barnabas. We want people to look at us and think, oh, they're spiritual. They're generous. They're a power couple. Man, that Ananias and Sapphira, they are good people. And so what they did, they came up with this plan, and they decided to sell a piece of property. We don't know how much it was for. We'll say it was $200,000. They said, all right, we're going to go to the church, and we're going to say, we've given you all of our profits from this field. But we're only going to give them $150,000. Still a lot of money. And people are going to think, oh, man, Ananias and Sapphira. You guys are like Barnabas. You are generous. You are spiritual. You are completely bought into the church. You guys are awesome. So they wanted to look spiritual and generous, but they didn't want to actually be that way. They wanted to hold back some for themselves. They wanted to look one way, but actually be another. And before we get all high and mighty on Ananias and Sapphira and look down on them because we could never do that, Let's slow down a little bit. I think if there is one message that 2019 America needs to hear, it is a warning about the desire to be perceived one way while actually being another. You know, we live in a culture that is obsessed with reputation and is obsessed with perception. You know, pick or it didn't happen. Only what people see about you. That's all that we think matters. So if you're on social media, I think it's kind of inevitable that you're going to fall into this trap. I, I am. You know, I, I work out of coffee shops a lot and, you know, kind of a funny thing that I see is, you know, somebody will come in and they'll, you know, pull out their way too big Bible because they want to look spiritual and they'll look around and think, you know who would really enjoy the vibe and the aesthetic that I got going on right now? my Instagram followers. So, so they pull out their Bible and they you know, situate their coffee right there perfectly and they lay their pen diagonally across the Bible and they add a few highlights because they want to look like they've actually read something. And then for some reason they put their watch like horizontal right over the top of the Bible and they spend you know, an extra 15 minutes just trying to find the perfect filter and all the while they actually haven't read a single thing. They want to be perceived as being one way without actually doing it. Or maybe if the city of Parker were to give out superlatives, if they were going to give out a Mr. and Mrs. Parker, you know, you might be a pillar in the community. You might think, I I have a great job, a very respectable job. People look up to me. I I coached a little league team. I head up the PTA or the homeschool co-op. Like, I I am all that. But, you know, the one thing my perception, my reputation needs is just a little Jesus peppered in. 
So, so I'll, go, I'll go to church every now and then. I, I want people to just see me at church so they'll think that I love Jesus. And that'll just be the, the nice little flourish that my reputation needs. Or it could be a little darker. Maybe you, you know, clear your browser history on a Saturday night and hope that your soul will, you know, be cleared as well in time for Sunday morning. All of us, myself included, if there's one thing that we are good at, it is putting on airs. All of us have this desire to be seen one way, to be seen as somebody. We just have to ask ourselves, is that who we actually are? So here at Redemption Parker, just one of our models of ministry is we have gospel communities. And so every uh, two weeks, so twice a month, we'll gather together, we'll share a meal, we will pray together, encourage one another, and we will study a passage of scripture together. And we read every passage of Scripture, we run it through a grid of three questions. And from every passage that we study, we ask these three questions. What does this teach us about mankind? What does it teach us about ourselves? What does this passage teach us about God? And how can I apply this, or who can I share this with? I think it's a great grid to run any passage of Scripture through, but I think it works especially well for this one. So that's going to be kind of an outline, a grid, uh, for how we're going to study this passage. So, how or what does this passage teach us about ourselves? This passage teaches us the truth about our deception. It teaches us the truth about our lying and our fronting and our putting on airs. According to the text, notice, who did Ananias and Sapphira lie to? I think, oh, well, they lied to Peter. They lied to the apostles. Or, you know, they lied to the church, right? Look at verse 3 of chapter 5 with me. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And I'll keep going in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then down in verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? So you might be able to deceive other people. In fact, you absolutely can deceive other people. You can deceive the people that you work with. You can deceive the people at church. You can deceive your kids. You can even deceive your spouse. I think you can even deceive yourself. You know, maybe just, you know, the first time, you know there's something that you shouldn't do, but, but you do it, and, and immediately you just feel the, that weight of guilt and shame. But then the second time, that guilt and shame is still there, but it's really not that bad. You did it once, you can do it again, and then, you know, by the 10th, the 50th, the 100th time, that, that guilt and that shame is gone. And suddenly it doesn't feel wrong anymore. It feels normal. It feels natural. And you think, oh, well, okay, I, I clearly can have these two lives. Nobody knows, and I feel fine. I, I think you can deceive yourself. But what this passage shows us about ourselves is that 
You cannot deceive God. You can lie to other people, you can lie to yourself, but it will not work. Our God is the creator, and we are the creation. That means that he sees everything. Sauron has got nothing on God. He sees all, he knows all, he sees past the lies and the deception and the fronting. Us trying to deceive God is like a two-year-old trying to, you know, hide the fact that they just ate an entire chocolate cake. You know, a parent walks into the kitchen, did you eat the chocolate cake? No. They've got chocolate all over their face and all over their shirt and all over the kitchen. It's just, it's foolish. You cannot do it. So what is the truth about our our lying and ourselves, the truth is that it doesn't work and it will eventually crumble. Paul says some either really encouraging words or really scary words, depending on how you look at it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, everyone builds on either the foundation of gold, silver, and precious stones, you know, either on a foundation that is strong and secure, on a foundation like Barnabas, you know, based on honesty and truth and selflessness, Or you build on a foundation of wood and hay and straw. Foundation that is weak and shallow. Foundation like Ananias and Sapphira. Foundation of lies and deception. Paul goes on to say, And each one's work, each one's foundation, will become manifest. It will be known, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So you can deceive people all day long. You can deceive yourself all day long. You can do that until kingdom come. But on the final day, at the end of the age, everything is going to come to light. If you built on the strong foundation... That'll survive, but if you built on the weak foundation, it's going to crumble and you are going to be exposed as a fraud. That's what it teaches us about ourselves. What does this passage teach us about God? I see two things that it teaches us about God. Number one being that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So I never want to be territorial or adversarial about doing ministry here in Parker or even here in the Pace Center. You know, if another sound, faithful, gospel-centered church decided to move into the theater just 50 feet away, that'd be a little weird. I would have some jealousy issues to work on, but in the end, we would be able to work through it, you know, because seeing another healthy church and seeing more people come to know the Lord and to grow in the Lord, that's more important. But if you were here with us last week for our Good Friday service, there was a group that met right over in the theater, and they self-classified themselves as a non-Trinitarian church. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe that Jesus is eternal. They believe that God created Jesus, that Jesus is just another one of God's creations. They do not believe that the Spirit is God or that the Spirit is a person. They just believe that The Spirit is an active and an applied force, you know, just like a Star Wars-esque force, an it floating around, kind of working sometimes, sometimes not. 
One of the reasons I bring this up is because in Acts 20, we'll get there eventually, Paul is giving instructions to the elders in Ephesus. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And so I I don't single out any group because I want to be mean. I just point that out because I want us to be alert. I want us to be alert that there are people who are not faithful to Scripture. There are people who want to come in and they don't care what they do to the flock. They, They will harm it till kingdom come so that they can twist and deceive and to lead people away from the gospel. And when you play loose with your language and your understanding of the Trinity, that is a dangerous slope to go down. So what does this teach us about God? It teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God. Again, look at verse 3 with me. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then at the end of verse 4, Peter can say, You have not lied to man, but to God. So so notice the connection there. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit didn't run, you know, Ananias and Sapphira's deception. He didn't run that up the chain of command. He didn't say, oh, I got to go check with the Father and the Son to see if they agree with this. He doesn't appeal to an authority higher than himself because he is an equal member of the Trinity. He is God. Each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is equal in divinity, in power, in honor, and in glory. And the Bible and the Christian faith begins to crumble when we deny that. So this passage teaches us that the Holy Spirit is God. Number two, it teaches that God does as he pleases. God does as he pleases. He does what he wants when he wants. So we briefly just talked about the judgment that all of us will face at the end of days. But what this passage shows us is that you might not have to wait till the end of the age to stand before God and to give an account. Ananias and Sapphira are judged on the spot. And they may have thought, yeah, I feel bad about this, but but we can always repent later. We we can always say that that we're sorry later and and everything will be okay. And and I think it's just part of the, the prideful human condition to assume that you are always going to have more time. You know, that you'll always be able to repent at some point. You know, growing up, secretly, I kind of always wanted a deathbed conversion. I wanted to go for you know, 80 or 90 years living all for myself, getting every ounce of worldly pleasure that I could, and with my next to last breath, I wanted to repent and say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I love you, forgive me. That, that way I'd have the best of both worlds, right? I'd get everything I wanted during my time on earth, and then I would just sneak in to heaven right at the last moment. It's a dangerous game to play. We, we don't know how much time we have. Our, our life is like a mist. It's like a vapor. It has gone like that. And we are not guaranteed tomorrow. 
And on top of that, I mean, what, what would make you think that after a lifetime of having a, a hard, rebellious, and unbelieving heart, that for some reason at the very end, your heart is suddenly going to soften and cherish Jesus? It's going to believe in Jesus after denying him for 90 years? I mean, it, it can happen, but I wouldn't play that game. I think a heart that plans to repent later is most likely a heart that cannot repent at all. And what we see is that God does as he pleases, and he can call you to give an account at any moment. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so if you are not in Christ, then God could call you to give an account at any moment. What did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So every sin is punishable by death. And God would be perfectly within his rights to call us to account for that. Every single breath that we have is a gift of grace from the Lord. So question number three, how do we apply this? How should we respond? I think if you're an unbeliever, I think the response is pretty clear and pretty urgent. You need to look away from yourself and you need to repent and look to Christ. I shared this a few weeks ago, but just this verse has been on my mind a lot. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And when a heart is presented with the gospel, it never stays the same. It either softens and believes and grows in its love and its affection and its obedience for Christ, or it hardens and it doubles down on its own sin and ignorance and rebellion and hard-heartedness. And so today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the Lord calling you to himself, if you are beginning to taste and see that the Lord is good, as long as it's called today, take advantage of it. God can call us to give an account at any point. So today, turn and look to Christ. That's for an unbeliever, but what should a believer do? I think this, this surprised me as I was studying it, but in response to a God who does as he pleases, a believer should be fearful of the Lord. What was the response of the church after the death of both Ananias and Sapphira? Look in verse 5 with me. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then down in verse 11, this is after Sapphira had died, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I think that's something that's pretty much always left out of the picture of the early church, that they were a people marked by fear. And I, I mean, notice these, it's talking about the church. These are people who believe in Christ, who are in Christ, and yet they are still fearful of the Lord. 
So we saw this a few weeks ago in Acts 3 with Peter's sign and sermon that with the privilege of seeing and hearing the gospel comes a responsibility to respond to the gospel. I think similarly, what we see here is that with the privilege of being able to regularly gather to worship the Lord, we also have a responsibility to not lose a fear of the Lord. You see this a lot of times with seminary students and with pastors, and and I think all Christians are susceptible to it at some point, but something that we always have to fight against is to not get bored with God. I I have to fight this a lot, and I'm not very good at it, because I spend hours studying God's Word, and I, I, I pray to Him, and I talk about Him all the time with other people, and sometimes I can feel myself losing the wonder. I, I begin to feel like I, I know God fully. I've got him down. He doesn't surprise me anymore. You know, he, just, he actually kind of looks like me and acts and thinks like me. He's not a God who is bigger than me and other than me. I think John Newton kind of got at this in his line in Amazing Grace when he said, how precious did that grace appear? the hour I first believed. Because when, when you first believe, when you first become a believer, you can't get over God. Just everything about him, his holiness, his righteousness, and, and the Son, and the Spirit, and the Father, and just all of it is just glory that melts your eyeballs right out of your socket, and you are just in a spirit of worship all the time. But as you keep hearing about it and keep hearing about it week after week after week. It is possible for the divine to become commonplace. Just think, I, I know this. I've heard this before. There's nothing special going on here. I think we need to be reminded that because God is a God who does as he pleases, that means that we should never lose our fear of him. Growing up, a lot of my Sunday school teachers would tell me that fear, fearing God, meant respect. And I think that's true. I think we absolutely do need to respect God and to honor God. That is an accurate uh, way that we should feel towards God. But, but when I read the passages in the Bible, you know, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, Revelation 5, where men are thrust into the immediate and the unadulterated presence of God, when they see his holiness and his righteousness and his strength and his wisdom and his majesty, what do they do? They get on their knees and they cover their faces like a scared child because they are terrified before an awesome God. And they realize, I don't have as much control over him as I thought I did. He is a lot bigger and a lot stronger than I am. He is completely other. He is God, and I am not. I think we would do well to remember that. And what happens when a church fears the Lord? The, in verse 11 is the first time that the word church is mentioned in the book of Acts, that word ecclesia. And we've been talking about the church a lot, but this is the first time that we actually see the word And what we're going to see is that there is an attractive and a repellent force at work in a church that fears the Lord. 
Look in verses 12 through 14 with me. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So the early church was a fearful people. They were a holy people living before a holy God. And you don't just move on quickly and run back to your sin if your church is averaging two deaths a week on Sunday. So they were fearful and walking in in holiness and humility before the Lord. And what was the result? We read that none of the rest dared to join them. Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that the church stopped growing? Does that mean that people refused to come? We know that can't be the case. In verse 14, we read that more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So so who were the rest that didn't dare to join them? This fearful church. I think it was just the crowds in Jerusalem. It's people who had seen Jesus, who had recognized Jesus, who, who had even liked Jesus. They respected Jesus. But they did not confess that he is Lord. Yeah, they liked him. They respected him. They were the people that like God on Facebook, whatever that means. But they didn't love him. He, he was their, their butler, not their Lord. And what we see is that those, those half-hearted people, the ones who were playing games, they didn't dare join this church. This church had a powerful God. This church had a mighty God. This church had a holy God. And while, yes, I, I, I'm going to respect Jesus, I know that this half-in, half-out thing is not going to work. So I'm just going to step out that none of the rest dared to join them. So there was a repellent force. It was a purifying effect on the church as the the half-hearted cultural Christian could no longer get by. We also see that there was an attractive force to this church. Again, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. So some people hated them. Some people couldn't get enough. To some, it was attractive. It was beautiful. There was nothing more enticing than a church that was walking humbly before the Lord. Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So to some, the gospel is a stench. It is an odor. It is offensive. And it pushes them away. And they say, I want nothing to do with that. But to some, to those who are being saved, to those whom the Lord is working on their heart, to those who can see a church that fears the Lord, they think, there's something there. They're different, and it is beautiful. It is enticing. It is aromatic, and I want more of it. It is life-giving to me. I am moving from life to life when I am around these people and around this God. So there is a repellent and an attractive 
force in this kind of church. So again, how can we apply this in our lives? Just as you go about this week, do it in fear of the Lord. Now, yes, if you are in Christ, God is not your judge. He is your father, but he is still to be feared. You cannot control him. So maybe as you go into your quiet time this week, do it a little slower. Don't come in word vomiting at God. Recognize that you are in the presence of a God who is so mighty and so holy and so righteous. Maybe, maybe you just need to stop talking and just focus on his character. Inundate yourself with his glory because it's about him. It's not about you. He's God. You're not. Or, or as you're making your plans this week, you know, James 4 says, don't go about boasting, you know, today or tomorrow or next week we'll go and do such a thing because you don't know what the future holds. So as you make your plans this week, say, hey, let's, let's meet up, Lord willing. It's just a, a way to humble yourself and submit yourself, even your schedule and your plans to a God who you cannot control. Or, or as you're speaking to your coworkers and your neighbors and, and, and your family, just when you speak about the Lord, make him big. Make him big, make yourself small. Speak about him as the God who is bigger than you, who is stronger than you, who is mightier than you, who is more glorious than you are. Make him the attractive one. He must become greater and you must become less. We have a God who does as he pleases and he is to be feared. So towards that end, let me pray for us. come before you humbly, confessing that we have no right to stand before you. We have no confidence in and of ourselves that we are worth anything. We confess that you are holy and that we are not. And so we come to you covered in the blood of Jesus desperate for his grace and his mercy. I pray that in this time and as we go about the rest of our weeks, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to show us who you really are. Show us your majesty. Show us your glory. Show us your holiness. Show us your justice. by beholding you, I ask that we would become more like Jesus. Would you conform us more into his image? Praise things in his name. Amen.